salt has come up quite a few times in this season from episode number one when I was talking with Jonathan Townsend about how they would have procured salt in colonial times to the episode with Wardy Harmon when we talked about fermentation and how important salt is in those jars of sauerkraut or pickles that you're making. And it's come up, I think, in almost every other episode, whether it's been about dehydrating or canning or cheese making. Basically, salt is a non-negotiable part of food preservation. Now, um, whenever I talk about salt publicly, well, ever since last year, at least, I kind of have to laugh. So last year I did a salt episode with Daryl of Redmond Salt. It was episode number 133. It was really good. He is a wealth of info. So you might want to go back and check it out if you want more um, in-depth info about all things salt. But anyway, um, to follow that up, I wrote a blog post to go with it. And I answered a lot of common salt questions in that blog post. And one thing that you do when you're writing is you want people to um, be intrigued enough when they start reading your article to keep reading. It's just writing 101, right? And so I started off the article with kind of a, a funny tongue-in-cheek statement. I said, I have banned salt shakers from my kitchen table. And what I meant by that was that salt is so important to me when I'm cooking, that I go above and beyond to make sure the food that I'm serving is well seasoned before it goes to the table. And, and that's why I, you know, I started off the article with that. And then I, you know, I explained it was a tongue in cheek thing, but you know, I know a lot of people have different thoughts on that. Some people don't put any salt in their food whatsoever. And they let people at the table add salt. I like to do it while it's cooking. I think it, um, has time to meld the flavors kind of work together and it just tastes better. And I just feel like that's my responsibility as a chef. But anyway, that's my thing. If someone asks for a salt shaker at the table, I don't like freak out, but I thought it was a funny way to start the article. Um, apparently a lot of people read like the first two sentences and don't keep reading because I got um, lamb blasted for that on Facebook <laughs> when I shared that article link. I think people read literally like the first line and then they left all these nasty comments about how I was crazy and I was a control freak and how uh, I was rude for not allowing people to salt food. I'm like, I didn't say you weren't allowed to salt the food. I just was like, anyway, anyway. So I still crack up when I think about that. And just so you know, if you read that article last year and you really want a salt shaker when you eat at my table, I will let you have one, but I hope you don't need it. That's my, my ultimate goal. Anyway, Salt. Salt is important in my kitchen. It's important in food preservation. So today I want to help you sort through all the types of salt out there. You know, you might've listened to some of these episodes this season and gone, well, I need to salt for this. I need salt for my cheese brine. I need salt for my fermentation. I need this and this and this. And I think we can make this a whole lot easier and condense this down. I kind of have one type and variety of salt I use for all the things, because I don't want to have 16 different um, bags of stuff in my kitchen. And so I want to share kind of my thought process and what salts I use and why I use them and why I picked what I picked. And I think we can make this a whole lot simpler. So here we go. You're listening to the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast, where ambitious people master the art of returning to their roots. Have you found yourself disenchanted with society or wishing you could opt out of the rat race? Perhaps you're craving a life that's meaningful and tangible, a life where you can create and produce instead of merely consume. I'm Jill Winger, best-selling author and longtime homesteader. Over the last 
10 years, I've helped thousands of families create more connection, grow amazing organic food, and find the ultimate fulfillment through an old-fashioned lifestyle. And I can do the same for you. Now, on to our episode. Okay, so first off, I just want to clarify, and you've probably grasped this from the other episodes, but just in case you missed it, you absolutely do need salt when you are fermenting or curing meat, because we are depending on the salt to help with the actual preservation process. However, when it comes to canning or freezing or dehydrating, you don't necessarily have to have salt. You probably want to add it for flavor, but you don't need it to be a part of the preservation process. So just, just so you know, but it, even though you don't need it for canning, um, it's still great to have it because it, there's a big difference between green beans that you've added salt to and green beans that have no salt or man, if you ever try unsalted broth, whether it's canned or not canned, it's just like not worth eating when, unless it has some salt in there. So, um, you know, if you are canning or dehydrating or freezing, you still want to have good salt, the, the bright salt to make sure it's giving those flavors, um, that you're expecting and not adding in any other stuff that's going to give you off textures off colors or just bad taste. So it does matter what salt you use. And um, I know when I first started cooking more, we first started homesteading, I had a lot of misconceptions about salt. I didn't understand the different types. I didn't really think there was that much of a difference. Like how could there be a different salt to salt, right? Like how could it have different flavors? But it does. And um, the biggest thing to, to take into consideration is not, well, salt itself is important, but it's really important to know what they're adding into the salt because that's what can get us into trouble sometimes with our food preservation. So the things that you're gonna have added into your typical table salt at the grocery store would be iodine, anti-caking agents, and sometimes even a little sugar. Um, anti-caking agents are what keeps the salt pourable and, you know, salt will attract moisture and it will get clumpy. And so most of the salt, actually all of the salt I buy is just pure salt. So it doesn't have anti-caking agents. And yes, indeed, when I pour it into a bowl and keep it on my counter, which I do by my stove, I have this little, um, cup of salt sometimes it gets a little clump and it's not a big deal. It doesn't get rock hard. You just poke it with your finger and it falls apart. But you know, they were trying to make salt pourable back in the day. So they added these anti-caking agents. They can cause your brines. If you're doing, um, fermentation, they can cause your brines to be cloudy. They can sometimes, um, give your foods a little bit of a metallic off flavor. So I just am like, skip the anti-caking agents, folks. We don't need them. Um, sugar is sometimes added or dextrose is added to, make up for the less than desirable flavors in cheaper salt. So that's why you'll see that sometimes on the back of the box. Um, and iodine, iodine has a really interesting history. And I'll be honest, for a really long time, I like didn't know what to think of this because I'm like, well, does salt just, just have iodine in it? Or how does this work? Or what happens if I have non-iodized salt? Because when you get non-iodized salt, you know, it says this salt does not supply a necessary nutrient. I'm like, Ooh, this sounds like dangerous or like I'm missing something or like what is happening here? So here's the scoop. And this is what Daryl from Redmond's explained to me last year. Historically, salt and iodine were never connected. 
like shocking, right? Because we just automatically think iodized salt, salt iodine. And we like, I'm like, this is just the natural order of things. Well, it's not. So during World War One, this is really fascinating. I love these these history pieces. Um, it's so cool. Anyway, during World War One, the military was trying to draft men from the Midwest, but there were goiter issues with a lot of these guys, and that is an iodine deficiency in that region of America, just because um, it was lacking in soil, those soils were depleted of these natural minerals. And when you're in the Midwest, you don't eat a lot of seafood or foods that are rich in iodine naturally. And so there was these deficiencies, which were causing the goiter issues. So in all of the wisdom of these um, government organizations, (laughs) instead of encouraging the public to eat natural foods rich in iodine, the military decided that it would be actually easier just to add iodine to salt because, I mean, everybody has to eat salt, right? So you're just going to get everybody what they need. So iodine, just so you know, it is a necessary nutrient and we often still do not get enough iodine in our diets. So it did kind of work, right? When you added it to the salt, you did fix some of those goiter problems that they were seeing. But you don't have to have salt as the only source of iodine. And if you're just eating iodine-rich natural foods, that's going to make more sense and be better for you. So if you are looking at switching to a sea salt, which is what I recommend, we'll talk about that here more in a minute, you don't have to be worried about, you know, non-iodized salt, necessary nutrients. Just make sure you're getting iodine and other places in your diet. It's, it's, it's pretty easy. So natural salt, real salt does have a teeny, teeny bit of iodine, but not enough that our bodies need. So you just want to um, add those more natural iodine-rich foods in and you will be just fine. So the reason that we avoid iodine in our preservation is because when we're putting iodized salt in canned foods, like in the jars, it can cause discoloration And when we're using it in fermentation, the iodine actually can inhibit the proper growth of bacteria. Um, So you can actually cause your ferments to not turn out as they should by using iodized salt. And that's why, you know, some of those older recipes, like in my ball blue book or, or ones like that, they'll call for pickling salt. And originally I was like, does that have like pickling spices in it? And it doesn't. All it is is just... Uh, a table salt that doesn't have caking, anti-caking stuff in it or iodine. That's all it is. So you don't have to have pickling salt for your canning or your pickles or whatever. All you just need to use is a pure salt. And for me, that's sea salt. Um, I, I've mentioned them several times. This is no surprise. I use Redmond's and they are a company I have loved working with. I was using their salt long before I started working with them they are mined in the US, not they are, the salt is <laughs> mined in the US. It tastes good. It has lots of trace vitamins and minerals in it. Uh, probably not trace minerals, sorry. It has lots of trace minerals in it. Um, and they're just a cool company. So that's what I use. And I have been able to use Redmond's in all of my cooking applications from just baking or, you know, cooking supper to fermentation, to making brines for my cheeses, to canning, to curing the meats, um, all the things. It's pretty much all I use. So 
That just keeps it simple. And then I'm not having to go to the store and trying to sort through where's the pickling salt, where's the kosher salt, um, where's the non-iodized salt. Like it just, it keeps it really, really simple. So we know we want to stick with sea salts for our preservation or just cooking in journal. But then we have the question of the size, which also can be somewhat overwhelming. So there are a number of different sizes of salt. And again, this really does make a difference and matter. It's going to affect how much you use, how you use it. So let's just kind of break this down. Um, I wish I had a big whiteboard and we could just write this out, but just try to, to visualize this. So number one, we have powder salt. It's just like it says, it's an, its name implies it's extra fine. I love powder salt for popcorn. Um, and Redmond's, they're the ones who opened my eyes to this possibility. They actually sell a popcorn salt, which all it is is just a super fine. It is magical in how it coats the popcorn. Like you just need a teeny bit. Like we have this tiny little pouch of it and it's lasted us over a year. And we still have an, a good amount in the bottom of the bag. But you just need this teeny little pinch of dusting over the top of the popcorn. And because it's so fine, it sticks to all of the kernels. And it's amazing. So that is pretty much the primary way I use powder salt. You could also use it, I would say, for, as a finishing salt. So if you have, let's say you have a, a pot of soup and you need a little extra punch of salt, but you're getting ready to put it on the table. And if you're using a bigger salt, it takes a while for it to dissolve and to get those flavors all the way through. And so you might use a, a powder salt just to get the saltiness through the food quicker. But otherwise, I mostly just use that for popcorn. Okay, so the next size up from powder salt is fine salt. This is kind of the um, regular coarseness. It's not, it's not like extra fine, it's just regular. So if you think about the table salt that would be coming out of a salt shaker, kind of standard American table salt, this would be the same size. And this is the type of salt that I keep in my little bowl by my kitchen stove at all times. I use it constantly. My kids have learned how to use it. They don't hardly even know what a salt shaker is. Don't send me nasty emails. They have access to salt, but they've learned how to pinch it out of the bowl instead of using a shaker. You can use it in a shaker, but I just like to be able to grab, you know, a, a handful, maybe handful is the wrong word. I like to be able to grab a generous amount with my fingers when I'm cooking. It's tactile. I can feel it. It just helps me versus a shaker. Again, use what you like. I feel like I'm getting into rocky territory with all of my salt comments once again. I just can't avoid this. I, can't, I create controversy over the silliest things. Anyway, don't yell at me over my salt shaker uh, things. Just, it's fine. Anyway. <laughs> okay, fine salt. Um, this is also the one I use in most of, pretty much all of my cooking. And, or I said that already, my my canning, my, I got all flustered. See, I got all flustered thinking everyone's going to send me mean emails over their salt shaker thing. Moving on. In my canning, in my fermenting, in my curing, in my uh, dehydrating, what else? Cheese making brine. This is the one I use because it dissolves a little bit faster, right? And that's what I like. So um, I buy this in a 25 pound bag at a time. I keep the bag down in our cool, unfinished part of our basement. And then I have a quart size jar that I keep up in my pantry. And then I have the bowl so that I have by my stove. So I just kind of do a, a, a fill rotation like that. Um, it does 
clump a tiny bit, but not like out of control, not like a hard, rigid clump that I have to, you know, break apart with a knife. It's just like this very light clump. And as soon as I squish it, it's fine. So I don't feel like I miss the anti-caking agents at all. All right. So next up size-wise from fine salt is kosher salt. Now, don't laugh, but for a very long time, like I don't even want to say how long because it wasn't that long ago where I learned better. I thought that kosher salt had been like blessed by a priest of some sort and it was like approved. And it, that actually isn't not really what is happening with kosher salt. It gets its name from the larger size of the crystals. So kosher salt with its larger crystals is ideal for drawing out moisture from meat, which makes it perfect for use in the meat koshering process to get that right amount of blood out of the meat. So you can learn more about that in episode 133 with Daryl from Redmond's. But um, that was eye-opening. And, you, you know, recipes will, ca- will call for kosher salt. Pickles sometimes will call for kosher salt. Um, it, it's great. You could also just use a coarse sea salt kind of interchangeably. At least that's what I've done. So if that's what you have locally, use that. If not, just use a coarse sea salt and call it good. Um, and then lastly, the, the bigger size would be the coarse salt for grinders. You put it in your salt grinder if you like to use your salt that way. Um, but yeah, so we have powder, fine, kosher, and coarse. And like I said, the fine salt is the one I use the most of. And you'll notice in my cookbook, I specified in almost all the recipes, like one teaspoon fine sea salt. So you were making sure you're using the right size because, um, the size can affect your recipes. So depending on the coarseness of the salt, the weight per volume can differ. So for example, a cup and a half of kosher salt that's a little bit larger might equal about a cup of fine salt. So you'll need to adjust the amount of salt you're using if you decide to swap it out for a different size of flake. So basically, if you're using Redmond's fine salt, use the measurement your recipe calls for. So most of the time when you're cooking out of a cookbook or a recipe on the internet, you're going to be safe to just use your fine sea salt, your fine table salt, whatever you may have. Um, But if a recipe specifically calls for a fine salt or a coarse salt and you don't have that size and you have a different size, you do need to make those adjustments. So if you're using uh, kosher salt instead of a fine salt, use a little bit more because those granules are going to take up more room. Think about it in the measuring spoon, you know, going to take up more room. Um, and if you're using a finer salt, like a powder salt, you're going to definitely want to use less because those are going to be packed in tighter. You're going to get more intensity, um, in the space of that measuring spoon. So it doesn't have to be hard, but it is good to know the difference. And, you know, when, if you are, I remember when I first was cooking and I didn't take into account, you know, I would easily oversalt or undersalt because I wasn't using the right size. So um, the good news is, is that this doesn't have to be complicated. And I, and I hope this episode gave you some ideas of just how to keep the salt simple, but it, it does matter. And one fun thing you can do is to try a couple different varieties. If you have like a, a health food store in your area or um, you can order some online, is to do like a salt taste test with your family to see if there's a brand or a variety, whether it's Celtic salt or Himalayan or Redmond's or um, there's black salts, there's flake salts, there's Maldon salts, like see which flavors you like the most. Some are going to be sweeter, 
Um, some have more of a minerally taste. You'll notice if you get Redmond salt, it has little um, pinkish brown flecks in it. And that's just the mineral and all of the extra goodness in, in Redmond's. And sometimes it will create um, a little bit of a pinkness or a brown tint to a brine. So for example, I use Redmond's Fine Salt for my cheese brines when I'm making my hard cheese, like I talked about with Robin a couple episodes ago. And I will mix that in to my warm water in my bucket and it makes the water kind of pink. I haven't had any issue with it whatsoever. It doesn't make my cheese pink or, or hurt my cheese, but there is that color. And I, I think that's a good thing to get used to because, you know, we're so used to perfectly uniform kind of bleached food in the standard American diet. And a lot of foods just, that's just not how they occur in nature. And salt isn't supposed to necessarily be bleached white all the time. There's lots of different iterations of it. So play around with it, taste it. You will be able to taste differences and see what you like for cooking and canning and all of those things. So speaking of canning and salts, I have mentioned my Canning Made Easy program a couple times here on this season. Um, it is my signature course to help people, no matter where you live, on a homestead or just your homesteading in your backyard, help you learn how to preserve food safely and confidently. And one fun thing we threw in this year is that for everybody who joins Canning Made Easy, I'm going to send you a box of stuff like from my homestead. It's actually sitting in a pile in my office right now. I have all these boxes, but I wanted to put together a few of my favorite things. And so we've been talking to a lot of companies. Redmond's is one of them. And I'm going to be sending you a, a package of some of my favorite canning accessories and tools. And so it includes um, a little mini shaker of Redmond's salt so you can taste it and try it for yourself. It includes some reusable canning lids. And a recap mason jars flip lid that you can put on your jars after, you know, not you don't put it in the canner with a flip lid, but let's say you have it out of the canner and you opened up the food and you've been eating the food, you can put the flip lid on just for easy access or use it to organize your pantry. Uh, we included some canning printed uh, cheat sheets and a canning journal and a whole bunch of coupons. And my my favorite thing of all probably is the old fashioned on purpose kitchen towel. It's a flour sack towel and it has the old fashioned on purpose manifesto that you've seen on my Instagram and you've seen me, heard me read it on the podcast. So I'm going to send all of that to you for free. Anybody who joins the program, um, when you order it, it's going to automatically put you on the list to get one of these little goodie packages. So I'm really excited. And it's just a great way for you to try some of my favorite canning accessories and also get some of that Redmond salt in your kitchen. So I hope you enjoyed this season, friends. It's been so good. I know I've learned a ton. The guests that I had on were so awesome and so knowledgeable. And um, yeah, I hope you gained as much as I did. So as always, thanks for listening. And we're going to take a little break, but then we'll be back with a brand new season of the Old Fashioned On Purpose podcast. Take care, friends. Mm -hmm.